Hi, my name's Scott Fulbright. Uh, I beat the often uh, path by turning algae into carbon negative ink products for shirts, packaging, and even leathers. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, I showcase unusual success stories to help us all think outside the box and, God forbid, develop a global perspective in our lives and careers. My guest today is Dr. Scott Fulbright, and he's the CEO and co-founder of Living Ink Technologies, a company that's developing the next generation of ink and coatings from algae. His innovative business model replaces the ubiquitous petroleum inks that are all around us from greeting cards to packaging to clothing tags to shirts, you name it. Now, his inks and pigments are carbon negative, and by switching to their product, we can save pounds and pounds of petroleum while removing carbon dioxide from the air. It's a true win-win-win that's gotten him millions in funding, several honors, and partnership with big brands like Nike, Adidas, Patagonia, and more. Dr. Fulbright embodies the spirit of this show, so I can't wait for you to meet him and learn about living ink. Well, welcome to the show, Scott. So glad to have you here. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing fantastic as well. As we all know, every kid who graduates high school, the first thought in their mind is they're going to turn algae into more sustainable ink. It's a very common career progression. Thousands of people have done it. So what made you decide to hop on the bandwagon? Oh, yeah. Easy, easy. Just that that one major that turns algae into ink um, and uh, commercializes it in the business world. Um, yeah, no, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of I went to school and I actually was going to be an engineer because my both my grandfathers were doing engineering type things. And so um, went to Michigan State, signed up to be an engineer my freshman year. And then that summer I got a job teaching sailing in California, Catalina Island off of L.A., Oh, nice. Beautiful. And uh, a good gig. Didn't, didn't pay real well, but I had great waterfront property. I, you know, uh, I was a camp counselor, taught sailing, but I, I just fell in love with being on the ocean. You know, you, you, like sailing, there's, there's dolphins, there's uh, kelp, which is beautiful, Garibaldi. Um, just, I just fell in love with marine biology. So I actually went back to Michigan State and said, you know, I'm going to do marine biology. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a marine biologist and I'm going to... You know, probably be on a boat, you know, tagging great white sharks or, you know, doing dolphin work. And, you know, that's the marine biology kind of idea there. And when I went back to school, I said, um, I need to get a job. I need to get some experience. And, you know, when you study marine biology in the middle of Michigan, you end up studying algae <laughs> and, and not, not, not marine life in the ocean. And so I ended up studying algae blooms and how algae um, grows fast. And, you know, sometimes it, it wreaks havoc on ecosystems. And as I was studying these algae blooms as a 20 year old kid, I said, you know, couldn't we use this you know, material for something that's beneficial to society and, and use it for its ability to grow fast? And so that's what kind of got me started in the algae world. <laughs> yeah, because usually when we hear about that algae blooms, the context is that it's a pest or a nuisance or even a massive problem. What, broadly speaking, is the problem with algae and freshwater water sources or where is it mostly a problem? Yeah, the, you know, so it can really, you know, like every spring, Gulf of Mexico, huge algae blooms. So the Mississippi River dumps into the Gulf and it's bringing all of that nutrient runoff from the Midwest agriculture. And those nutrients basically um, uh, cause these massive algae blooms. And when the algae dies, 
uh, it starts to create organic matter in the water and then bacteria start to grow and then basically it sucks the oxygen out of the water and that's what can kill that's what leads to these fish kills and can harm other um, marine life and so you know algae is actually you know it's the foundation of the ecosystem right everything eats it uh, and so you know when it's when it's in balance with the ecosystem you know algae is essential right 50% of the oxygen that we all breathe right now whether no matter where you are in the world no matter how inland you are comes from algae so you know it's critical for all of us just not too much in a specific location <laughs> Like a bloom. <laughs> yep. Right, exactly. And you're confronted with this. And one of the most fascinating lines of thought that we ever encounter on this show is when somebody turns garbage or waste into something positive. Was that something that's always been in your nature? How did you develop that mindset? Yeah, you know, I grew up pretty close with my grandparents who were, you know, depression era individuals. And, you know, if you threw a rubber band away, they were like outraged, like the things that you could do with that rubber band, you know, and, uh, you know, never throw away aluminum or glass. And so, you know, I grew up with that kind of mindset um, of, of reusing things, you know, back back in the the mid nineties, I would spend like half of a Sunday with my father, like recycling things. Cause you had to break everything up, wash it all out. You know, the, the green glass couldn't be recycled with the clear glass and then you'd have to go dump it. So yeah, I mean, I was kind of raised with, with those values of just, you know, we have limited resources and we all know that. And, you know, we have to be able to come up with these, uh, reusable systems. Otherwise, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to end up in a good spot, which we're starting to see a little bit right now. Um, so yeah, back in the nineties, my, my dad and grandparents were into the circular economy, whether they do it, knew it or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I take issue with what you just said, because I wish that we all knew that, but we all don't know that. Unfortunately, <laughs> everything's fine. Seems to be the normal <laughs> operating <laughs> mindset around us these days. We're fine. It's just one big party. Let's keep on partying. Right. Yeah. 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 What's the harm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but okay. So you grew up with conservation in mind, sustainability in mind, and you were confronted with this problem, Lake Michigan, and you realized, okay, maybe this could be turned into something positive. What was the next sequence of events from there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's always, I, I, I found it to be at least a stressful time in life when you're graduating college and you've had, you know, you, you have all these friends you've had your whole life and now it's like, what are you going to do? And let me tell you, when you have a bachelor's in marine biology, you know, there's an extra level of stress because there is not a clear path on what to do. I had friends who, you know, got a degree in accounting, like there was a very clear path of where they were going. And um, that was just the progression. So I didn't have that many contacts in my network, but I started reaching out to people saying, you know, I'm looking for a job. I'm pretty open to all these different things. And one of the individuals that I had worked with as an undergrad in a laboratory, you know, I was basically washing her dishes. Um, she had gotten a job at a company turning algae into biofuels. And so that was one of my first moments of entrepreneurship. So, oh, you can have an idea, you can go raise some funding, and you can try to make a product or, um, or a service. And, and, and get it into the world. And a little backstory on me is that my, my dad was a professor at Michigan State. So I'd just grown up in the science world of you write a grant, you get some funding, you spend the funding to do really good research, you publish it to the world so everyone knows about it. And if it gets used, great. If not, you know, it's a bank of knowledge that we've been creating for, you know, um, you know millennia. And uh, but then this whole idea of impact and scale really was was interesting to me of like, oh, like unless it actually scales at a material level, um, then the impact might not be felt. So got I got a job at a company that would 
raised like $20 million turning algae into all sorts of different things, including fuel. That was the next big step where all these kind of aha moments kind of blast off in my head of what you could do. That's so cool. And where do we stand on using algae as fuel? Is it a viable fuel source? What kind of fuel are we talking about here? Yeah. So there's, there was a couple of companies uh, that made, you know, uh, um, everything from diesel to airplane fuel. So, I mean, there's been planes that have been flown on algae fuels. There's been, uh, there's been uh, um, ships in our military that have run on algae biofuels. You know, the big, the big challenge is just scale and cost. I mean, fuel is, is very cheap for the most part. Even though we're, we're used, you know, we're used to, you know, right now it's expensive, but, you know, really when you think about it, it compared to other materials, it's it's pretty cheap. And then the, the scale that we use, it's just massive. So just trying to get um, agriculture. So, you know, algae farms that are large enough to fulfill our thirst of uh, oil and, and fuel is is difficult. So uh, there's still some companies working on it. A lot of companies pivoted to get into more of the material space um, and less of the fuels. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that believe in the next 10, 20 years that, you know, algae fuel is a viable option in the, in the fuel world. It's just going to take time. Okay. And what percentage might we be talking about of total fuel use? A couple percent, one percent? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah. Even one percent is pretty large, right? When you start thinking about the right. gallons that's actually used, it's a good question. You know, I, I think that, um, I don't know the exact answer to that. I think it will, it would be a, a relatively small percent and it really location dependent, right? So like, you know, my take on energy is that every geographical region is going to be using different sources of power. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think the Southwest and the U.S., there's an option to grow a lot of algae and actually, you know, have, have some fuel that, that's made down there. You know, up in like North Canada, it's a little harder to grow algae. But I'll tell you that there's a company up in uh, Iceland and uh, and they turn algae into all sorts of different products. But they're using geothermal energy to basically turn lights on. So it's carbon neutral energy to turn these lights on to then grow algae. So they're growing really sustainable algae up in Iceland uh, because of the geothermal energy. So it's just a combination of, of things. So to answer your question, I wish I knew the answer, um, but I don't. And I think it'll still be a relatively small part of the overall portfolio of, uh, of fuels. Well, I like what you said about the region-specific power. That does seem to make sense. And Iceland's got some crazy stuff going on. I'd love to visit. I've never been there, but I've seen the footage of their geothermal plants, and it looks wild. Just they got a lot of good stuff going on. I would have never I, I it never crossed my mind to use that to then power lights to grow agricultural products. But it makes a lot of sense once you think about it. Right. I mean, once that's set up, that's going to be growing algae or other crops for, you know, decades, if not centuries, I would think. Incredible. So harvesting this algae, does that reduce the other problems or is this completely unrelated? Are you able to solve the problem of these toxic algae blooms at the same time as you harvest it? Or is it just two different locations where this is happening? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, midterm, I think we think there's options there to go in and harvest that material. There are groups um, that are doing it. There's a there's a shoe company called uh, uh, Bloom Foams. Uh, and so they actually, they go out, they collect these algae blooms, and then they put it into soles of shoes. And so they work, they've launched with some of the bigger shoe brands out there. So there's some companies doing that. There's challenges to that model um, in terms of the, the, the blooms and kind of where they're happening and, and logistics. So right now we're actually working with domestic growers. So essentially algae farmers that have these massive 100 acre farms, they grow algae, uh, in these little tiny, in, in these kind of very shallow ponds using sunlight uh, and water. And uh, and so right now we're using that kind of domesticated source of algae, but we're also using waste streams. So 
these, even these farms, they, they make their, their product of interest. And then when they're doing that, they actually generate waste streams. And we take those waste streams and we put it into our process. So we are still finding ways to use waste material in our process, even if it's not coming from the algae blooms. Whoa, that's really cool. Yeah. Is water something that you need a lot of to do this or using naturally occurring water sources? What kind of resources are needed to to make use of it? Yeah, it's a great question. So right now, yeah, water is needed. Uh, The algae ponds themselves are only about eight to 10 inches deep. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's not that deep in terms of the, the, the pond themselves. Uh, The farm that we work with, they're using renewable energy, they're recycling all the water. So, you know, if, if you had my coffee cup full of algae, uh, there's only a little bit of biomass in that algae, but you would, you know, you would spin it down, for example, and you'd get your paste of algae, and then all of that water that's remaining, you'd put back into the system so that you're constantly recycling it. So, yeah, a lot of these groups are getting pretty good at sustainably growing algae. But yeah, water, water's definitely um, needed to to grow algae. Yeah, that makes sense, obviously. And of course, with the sun, evaporation is going to be a big part of it for now, unless you're using the geothermal, like you said, maybe they've got something else figured out in the land where there is no sun. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the group up in Iceland and, and really around the world, there's some groups doing this that are actually doing it in closed systems. So think of like glass tubes. So you're actually reducing the evaporation because it's a closed system that's growing the algae, like aquaponics kind of. So there's a lot of different systems to grow algae, believe it or not. And there's a lot of pros and cons to those those systems. Um, You know, one of the nice things about algae is that, you know, what causes some of these algae blooms is that, you know, when you fertilize a standard crop in the Midwest, and it rains, all of that nutrient runoff ends up in the Mississippi River, for example, and then washes down. In algae, you're kind of re, you're reusing the nutrients that aren't getting used, and you're recycling the water that didn't get used. So it's no, there's nothing that's like seeping into the ground and getting kind of washed away. So again, every, every crop has its pros and cons, but yeah, you're exactly right. Water's used and there is evaporation if you're doing kind of these open pond systems. That makes sense. So algae can be used for fuel. It can be used for shoes, for breakfast cereals, for inks. Is there anything (laughs) algae can't do? I mean, there's a pretty big portfolio of companies out there that are exploring every different avenue. I just talked to a company that's doing um, plastic bags made from seaweed. So like a fully compostable plastic bag that you could wrap a a shirt in or or any kind of kind of packaging. There's groups turning seaweed um, into uh, all sorts of like liners, like on, on for fast food, rather than using a plastic liner, which makes the 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 uh, package uh, or food container un- not recyclable. They're actually making it so it is recyclable or compostable. So yeah, Amazing. I mean, you, you name it, and there's probably some startup company turning algae into it. <laughs> so algae, source of the future. That's so cool. Uh, now you could have picked anything. You were intimately familiar with the concept. You could have chosen any field. Ink. Why ink of all things? How did you even know that there was an issue there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this story because I feel like it's very common, but, um, you know, I spent, um, years, uh, in algae labs. Uh, I spent years at algae companies. I went to grad school and I was studying algae and you sit there, you know, in the laboratory at your desk and you're just kind of thinking like, think of an idea, come up with an idea. There's gotta be something out there. Right. <laughs> And then the next day you do it again. Like I see all this stuff, there's gotta be something. And so I was working in my laboratory one day and I know it was my, um, my, my grandma's birthday was coming up and she loves a good greeting card sent to her. And so I went out to this uh, Safeway grocery store and I was 
picking out a greeting card for her. And it really happened when I, I saw the cost of the greeting card. I said, well, you know, what's a greeting card? Like it's paper, it's an idea and it's ink, you know? And I was, what, why is it, you know, $8 or whatever it was. And, um, and then I just realized like, well, what's ink. And then I looked around the entire store and like everything was covered in ink, like the floors, the packages, the signs. And it's one of those things that I, you know, I don't think a lot of people think about. And I went home and I said, you know, what is ink made out of? And it just came up that it was basically petroleum. Like all of the colorants are made from petroleum or oil. All of the the ink itself is typically made from petroleum or oil. And I said, you know, the more I researched, the more I realized everything was petroleum. Like my toothpaste, it's like plastic bristles and a plastic handle, like all from petroleum. So, you know, I was studying algae at the time, but I went down this path of just starting to look at the world and asking myself, what is everything made out of and where does it come from? And that was kind of a fun exercise. And I still do that today. So that's how we started to think about ink. And then I said, well, can we use algae as an alternative to petroleum based colorants and inks? And um, if you fly into, if you ever fly into San Francisco airport, there's these massive back bays back there. And sometimes they're yellow and they're orange and they're red. And those are actually algae that are causing those colors. And so I'd seen Hmm. that before. And so when I was in the grocery store, I kind of told myself, I know that algae make colors. You know, can you use those colors for for ink? So I actually I went I went back to my lab and I called my co-founder because we were friends at the time and we were always trying to come up with ideas, you know, of like how do we turn this into a career you know, of what we're doing? And uh, and I pitched him this idea of a living ink. I said, we can use living algae. We can create a message that grows over time when you put it in front of light, which will power it to grow. So on day one, it could say happy birthday. Day two, a cake could show up and day three, it would say from Scott, you know, happy birthday, Ross. And, uh, and he was like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Like, it doesn't make any sense, you know, yeah, <laughs> which, I, right. which I like. When I, you know, sometimes <laughs> when you come up with an idea and someone's like, I don't get it, be like, this is, uh, this is the brilliance of it. Like, it doesn't make sense, but I think there's something there. And so that was our first product. We did a Kickstarter campaign. Um, and then we kind of went down this idea of like, hey, how do you make a product? How do you make, a, how do you make an LLC, right? You know, at first it's all daunting. And then you start doing it going, oh, it's not that hard. Or, you know, now I know how to do that. That makes perfect sense. Well, petroleum being the base of all of the inks that you think about, obviously that's not the only component of an ink. What else is ink made of? Petroleum would be the base, I assume, but the actual color or pigment would be something else generally, right? Yeah, I mean, all of the colorants for the most part come from petroleum. So they can how take that work? they can take oil and they can they can basically do... Um, all these different chemical steps to get bright blues and reds, you know, and even carbon black, which is the black pigment in my my iPhone case and my headphones and black ink. That's just heavy petroleum that's basically burned at a pretty high temperature. And the remaining material is this carbon black that's used. So, yeah, I mean, even the colorants that we see are typically petroleum derived, which is which is wild. Even the blues and the reds. So what what kind of step would it take to turn that blue or red? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of different kind of, uh, you know, synthesis steps within kind of organic chemistry, um, which I guess I used to do back when I was an undergrad and didn't know what I was doing at the time. Or I was, now I'm interested in it. But back then I'm like, let's do this step. Then, you know, you add this additive and then you do this filtration step and then you end up with this yellow color. And you're like, oh, that's that's one way that you can make a, make a pigment. So um, you know, there's still there's inorganic pigments out there. So, you know, some some pigments that are mined from the earth, like, you know, if you go to Utah and there's like red, you know, red earth, like, you know, there, there's ways that you can kind of use that. But, yeah, I would say the majority of the pigments, so, as far as I know, are mostly from petroleum today. That's so cool. 
And it speaks to, I mean, what substance has been studied more by humanity at this point than petroleum in general? Scientists for decades have been trying to extract every every <laughs> drop of this, finding a million different uses. But it does speak to the idea of, if you've heard of the man with a hammer syndrome, to man with a hammer, every prob- everything looks like a nail. If you're trying to use petroleum to solve every problem, it turns out you can solve a lot of problems with petroleum, a lot of crazy problems. And now maybe we could do the same for algae. Can we just swap it in many cases? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the goal, right? I mean, you get an oil, you get a barrel of oil and you start to use different fractions of that oil for different applications. So they've, I mean, you're right. They've, I mean, the petroleum industry is amazing at how it scales, how streamlined the supply chain is and how versatile the actual material is. I mean, everything that we use that's petroleum-based is amazing, right? In terms of performance and quality, when you see a tire, you know, when you see a car that runs on four tires, um, you know, in, in a semi-truck driving on the road, you're like, how is that, how does that tire even work? Like, how does that material hold that truck up, right? Um, and uh, and so there's just, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, even the black, you know, we do like controls and we use regular carbon black, which is a black pigment made from petroleum. And we're all like, this is amazing. I mean, it's so black and it's so robust. It's it's a good product for, for some applications. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, some of these bioproduct ideas are, you know, can you get a barrel of algae oil and start to use different fractions for different applications? Some of it's really high value, like maybe like even food or nutrition. And then, you know, some of it's bottom of the barrel, you know, maybe maybe use it for uh, for ink or, or other things that um, it doesn't need to be so refined. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's the goal that a lot of people are shooting for, whether they're using algae or even other biomass sources. Just trying to find all of the different uses sitting there going, think, damn it, think, just like you for years. What can we do? Come up with a brilliant idea. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, I think the fraction age, like, I think your whole point, I mean, the the whole idea of of being as efficient as you can with using the material and then unlocking the value, I mean, is the other thing, right? If you grow up algae and you only make one product, you know, it's hard to make a business of that. Now, if you grow algae and you start to make multiple different products and you're in multiple different markets where you're diversifying, you're unlocking the value of that material. So yeah, a lot, a lot of really interesting things going on in that algae and bacteria um, kind of bioproduct space. That's so fascinating. And also that it stemmed from just witnessing algae be different colors. So what are the factors that contribute to algae being red or yellow green i assume yeah i mean some of it's just kind of like the species you know like when you see a rose plant and you see like a red flower like that's the species of rose that's making that so some of it's just the type of algae and then some of it's actually like the way it's grown so you can have a really green like algae cell like think of it as just a little sphere that's green and then all of a sudden like if it doesn't have a a nutrient like nitrogen for example and all of a sudden it, it feels like it's starved of a nutrient it can change from green to red within days. And so um, people can actually control how you grow it to get these different colors. So yeah, species, way you grow it um, are the two major ways to kind of control color within algae. So then what were your first steps when you had this crazy idea? How did you begin to start going down that path? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. well, I called my friend at the time who said, yeah, I don't, that's a bad idea. I don't get it. And then the next day right. he's like, I, I start to get it. I, I think I see that vision. Okay. Let's, you know, and so we had access at the time of, you know, growing a little bit of algae and, and, uh, trying to like make our first kind of prototypes just to see if it would even work and go, okay, th- there's something there. It's, it's definitely not good yet, but we can get there. 
And, uh, and then we started the, we got like an LLC. So we, you know, for $15 in the state of Colorado submit like, Hey, it's super you know, easy in Colorado. Yeah, exactly. I think it was like the company was called grow your message LLC. And it was like, you know, and so, um, we submitted a, a provisional patent, which is, you know, when you submit a provisional patent, I think it's a hundred dollars and you could submit a PowerPoint, a one page document. It can be really anything to claim like, Hey, this is an idea I have. I'll come back to you in 12 months with maybe more information if we're continuing to pursue it. So I remember we got the patent in and we felt really proud of ourselves. Like, oh, we just submitted a patent. You know, I think it was pretty bad, but it was like we got it in. And um, the other thing that was a game changer for us is we were we were at the time students and we got into an accelerator within Colorado State University. And they basically, you know, it was like a 10 or 12 week program of like, how do you start a company? Like, what's a patent? Like, what, what's, um, what's a supplier? Like just basic things of like running a business, which for us was like just every, every evening it was like aha moments of like, whoa, I've never thought about that. You know, I was typically the person that says, why is this pen $3 when the materials cost three cents? And then you go, oh, like there's that and there's that and there's that and there's that. And then it's got to get here. And then I got to, you know, someone's got to sell it. You go, okay, that's how it works. (laughs) And that's often why, you know, I think right now I'm very empathetic to the way the world is because it's, um, it's hard to get new things in the world because there's, you know, historically there's just the way things have been done and it's hard to change that because it's so streamlined and it's so efficient and, um, so yeah, we got in that accelerator program and really learned what a business is and how to kind of get our, get on, get on our feet. So at, at what point did you have the breakthrough where you realized we actually have a sellable product here? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I remember the we went down to this toy shop and uh, you know so we're doing something right now that's a little bit different than what we were doing at that time. But we went down to a toy shop in Fort Collins, Colorado, and. We pitched this this guy an idea, and he said, "I really liked it." He was like, a, he ran a toy shop, and you could tell he was a creative individual. And he said, "You know, I liked that idea a lot." And I remember he he gave us a dollar, and he said, "Remember this dollar. This is your first dollar you've ever gotten. When you have the product, come back, and I will, I'll buy it from you. But here's your first dollar. That's like my down payment or prepayment, you know." And so. I remember him, I remember that going, like walking away going like, that's cool. He actually likes what we're doing, you know? <laughs> and of course it's like the toy shop owner in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, but we did a Kickstarter campaign and we had, we think we got about $62,000 as we did that campaign. And, um, and uh, I think we sold like 1300 units of that. And so that was when we were going, okay, people want this. There's, there's a, they like the vision, you know? And uh, that was the first the moment, you know, I think, you know, one of the other stories that, that goes, you know, to, to what your podcast is all about is the moment we went from this kind of niche, obscure idea, which is how a lot of things start to more of a, like, can we replace ink? Like, can we go, like, can we do mainstream ink and actually make a really big impact? And I was friends with a designer at the time. And he was like, you know, you should take my screen printing kit and go to see if your stuff works. And I'm like, you know, yeah, he doesn't understand what we're doing. Like he doesn't get it. Like it's not gonna work. Like we're doing our little product here. And so he's like, just take it. So one night at like 10 p.m. I'm in the lab and I like take the algae and I'm like just kind of messing with it. And I take the screen, which I've never, it's like a squeegee and a screen, which is basically holes that you jam ink through. And I yeah. pull the screen down or the squeegee down in the screen and I pull off the um 
the, the, the screen and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it worked. <laughs> like, that, like that's an ink, you know? <laughs> and it's like, that's like not a niche thing anymore. You know, it's niche in its own way, but it's a real ink. Like I could print brochures, I could do promotional materials, I could do birthday cards. Like, and that, you know, that was one of those moments going, oh, like, you know, when you start combining a marine biologist who's studying algae with the designer who knows what screen printing is, like there's some cool things that can come from those conversations. And I only assume while you're doing that, lightning is coming down outside. It's raining. You're screaming. <laughs> yeah. <and they're> like, <laughs> it's a lie. It worked. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, five yeah, minutes yeah. later, <laughs> the ink rubbed off and you said, oh, yeah, God. It, it Back faded to square away. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One wash and it was gone. But for that brief moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I did, I like did a take God. a picture with my, my – was, I think it was like 2014 or 15 and I just got an iPhone. And I remember like taking a picture picture sending it to my co-founder being like it like look at this like this is real like i just did this and i you know it's just it's it's you know life's about expectations and my expectations were so low and i had no idea what i was doing <laughs> that i'm like what could, what could what's, what's gonna happen here right nothing or if anything it's gonna be a mess and i had to clean up and then to actually pull that screen off going wow that was really detailed it was really beautiful and it worked that was like wow like the expectations were blown away so i remember driving home and i was just like hey that that's something you know so you know if you have enough of those kind of moments over a few years like usually i think good things happen <laughs> what is it about those moments that people get it's always these kind of random seemingly out of the blue moments that propel somebody forward why did that person say, here, try this? What was going on in their mind that they thought this would work? And then it did. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated you know, by that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in Fort Collins at that time, and I'm sure there still is because it's a very creative community that's very, um, you know, personable and caring and helpful. And I think there was just a lot of people interested in talking to other people. Like, how do we get ideas off the ground? How do we think of new things that change the world, right? There's always that rhetoric but then, you know, people that actually showed up to these things at like 7, 8 p.m., you know, and, and to, to have the conversation. So, you know, I think we were pitching them saying like, oh, you know, this is what we're doing. And they said, well, this is our area of ex expertise. You should try doing these not to try to like make money or do it or claim intellectual property, but just like I think this would be really interesting to do. And so I think a lot of it, you know, when I think back to Living Inc., there's been very few moments where it's just me, right? There was the first moment in the grocery store that was like, oh, like, could we do ink from these algae or microbes? And then a lot of the things that moved the needle since then have been other people of just conversations or getting helped or, um, and so that's why, you know, I spend a lot of my day talking to people because I think that's where this, you know, I think that's where those moments happen is like, you know, we had one of our big moments of the first ink we ever, a true ink that we ever made that could go on a real commercial printing press was with an ink chemist. He's like, I've never thought about algae. I've never really taken a biology class, but I'm a chemist and I've been in this industry for 30 years. And then, you know, there was some really cool conversations and products that came out of the, that, that collaboration. I think that that's one of the best features of Colorado as a state. Again, growing mm -hmm. up there, there is that collaborative sense. I really do feel that people are there to help each other. And there is a certain kind of entrepreneurial spirit that Colorado seems to have where it's really not about getting a leg up or getting the money. It's just people do genuinely seem to kind of want to help each other in the entrepreneurial community. Still is that something rest. that you've just generally experienced there? Oh, I lost you for a second. Um, oh. We're good. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I agree with the state of Colorado. You know, I think that what, when I was there in, 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 um, in, in 20, uh, well, yeah, 2010 to 2022, really, it, 
it was a lot of people that were kind of burned out from the coast lifestyle. And they said, you know, I want to come and change, you know, and just have a little bit laid back and not be so cutthroat in, in kind of what, what's going on. And, and, uh, and then I think the other thing was like, you know, I think there was just a lot of really nice people. Like that's what I found with Colorado, especially I, I live on the East coast right now. And you know, there, there's nice people, but less so. <laughs> so in Colorado, it's like every single person we met was like helpful for the most part. And, and I think that goes a long ways in a small community trying to do startups. Yeah, that has been my experience as well. Obviously, I live in one of the most cutthroat areas. Maybe not quite Silicon Valley cutthroat, but Los Angeles is pretty close. And everybody's nice, but it, it, it's different. You can't say that it's the same thing. People are collaborative, but there's an undercurrent of something else that you just don't find. I don't want to say ulterior motives, but it's more intense. And in Colorado, there's more of an exploratory vibe. People say, oh, come on, up, let's just try this thing. There's less pressure. And I don't know why that is, but it's something that I've definitely noticed. That's a yeah. strong positive of the state, in my it's, experience. It's a culture. It's a culture, for sure. It's Especially in, in the boulders yeah. and Fort Collins. And even Denver's a city, but it's small. But yeah, there's a culture there of, of, of everything you just said. Of collaboration. Good. And yeah. also just trying to solve some interesting problems. And yeah. often yeah. with... a microbreweries right? it's always microbreweries yeah yeah i mean i think the other thing that we find in colorado was you know there's a pretty good work-life balance and a lot of people move there for that now you know and yep. I, I do think there's something to that right and i think going back to how my story unfolded you know and even today i, I get in these moments where i just like just you just grind like just things have to get done and you want to get things done and what i found is that there's a um the more, the, the harder I work and the more in the weeds I am, the less creative I am, the, the less big thinking I do and the less breakthroughs there are. Now, when I step away and, you know, if you're in Colorado and you go skiing or you go for a hike, there, you know, I think people take a little bit more time to get perspective on the world and to think a little bit more creatively. And so I think that's the challenge I have right now is, is trying to grow this business is I have all these great, you know, not great ideas. I have all these very interesting different ideas, but I have no time to really think about like pursuing them or, or even further because we're so busy with the day to day. So it's good. It's a phase of business. But I think Colorado, there's something there about, you know, work life balance and coming up with cool ideas. And you bring up an interesting point with that. These phases that we go through as entrepreneurs or business people, sometimes we willingly subject ourselves to these phases. Sometimes we know we're doing a bit too much and we say, okay, for the next two months, I'm going to go really hard. It's probably not sustainable, but I'm just trying to get this one specific goal. But some part of you recognizes that after this, I really need to dial it back. And I go through phases like that as well, phases where – I know I'm kind of pushing the envelope a little too hard. I'm burning the candle at both ends a little too hard, tackling too much. And you can do it, but you recognize if I do this forever, I'm going to be in some kind of trouble. Do you feel that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I have a decent gauge now for the most part, you know, um, of, of just that feeling of like, yep, uh, this is too much. And, uh, and when to pull back and to, to, to settle things down, but also going back to the priorities of like really what does matter. Some things like you said, just have to get done. And that's just the way it is. And it's uncomfortable. And then there's other times I'm like, well, why, why am I pushing so hard on this one priority when it's not even at the, the top of the list right now? Right. So no, t- I totally, totally feel you. It's, it's uh, I, I journal every once in a while just to go like, what's bothering me? Like write those things down and be like, okay, like how do we, how do we solve this? And yeah, you know, sometimes it, like you said, it's just getting through something, but most of the time it's just getting perspective and, and, you know, trying to slow down a little bit for sure. Yeah. And gauging stress, I think measuring stress and 
Because a certain amount of stress is the fun. That's the excitement of the doing it. A certain amount of stress is positive and gives you motivation. But then there's a fine line when you cross over and you say, okay, that's probably that unhealthy stress that might lead to a heart attack if unchecked. How do you yeah. manage the stress in your life? Yeah, 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 it's interesting. It's, um, you know, one of the things that I've, that's, I think have been one of the, I don't know, the fun parts of Living Inc. is, you know, before I even heard about like what growth mindset was, like really kind of pursuing that. And so I think one of the first days we did Living Inc., my co-founder and I, we said, you know, what's the, no what are we trying to get out of this? Like, what's the number one priority here? And the number one priority after we talked was like, let's learn something like every day. Like if we're learning, like we're pursuing our curiosity, which is big, both scientifically and how does the world work and how does supply chains work? And at the time we had no idea. And it was kind of, it's been fun to learn that and we're still learning. So that was a big thing that took the pressure off of us, you know? Now, um, a lot of like stakeholders at Living Inc. don't like to hear me say like, we're just trying to learn. <laughs> you know? yeah. But yeah, we learned a lot. It's gone terrible. No, uh, but, um, but you know, learned in what some, not to do. Yeah. You know, but, but in some ways we both have a good work ethic. We knew that we've like to follow through on things. And we said, if that's our number one goal is to learn, like we know we're going to follow through on the rest. And so that's always take pressure off of what we're doing. And, you know, even when we, even when we have a bad day or some bad event that happens, we've always had that mindset of like, look at like this happened today, you know, what can we learn from it? And, you know, some of that comes back to like, Hey, let's diversify suppliers. Hey, let's diversify partners in our supply chain. So we don't get stuck with one. Like, so, you know, it goes back to talking to people. Like I talk to peers that are doing similar things to us and that reduces my stress level. Cause I know I'm not crazy. Like we're all doing hey, like your problems are the same as my problems. And then also you learn what to do. Hey, I made, you know, I just talked to someone and said, we made this mistake. If I could do it all over again, this is how I would do it. And I'm like, that's great to know because we're just going to enter that in the next year or two. So talking to people is a great way to make sure we're not crazy and we're learning and, and trying to avoid those stressful moments. But um, yeah, I, you know, I have three kids. I got a 10 month old, five year old and seven year old. And they've, you know, wow. they've actually been great because, you know, when you are in the moment with them, like you have to be in the moment with them, you know? So yeah. like, even if I know things have to get done, but they need to go to bed, like, yeah. you know, I, I can't, I, you know, you can't do two things at once very well. So they've actually been a, a blessing for me to reduce my stress in some ways, which is just like, they, you know, just block, block everything out, go play for a little bit and then come back when, when, when the time's right. Um, so yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's been, that's been good. And then also perspective, right? Like, you know, I, I used to have on my wall the sticky notes of events of Living Inc. and how it started and always reflecting, like, look how far we've come. I know today's a challenging day, maybe, but look how far we've come. We're really good at solving problems. We'll, we'll get through this problem. So that, that perspective always reduces my stress level. <laughs> I like that, the sticky notes, the, the timeline of your business. That makes sense. And your project. Because we do tend to forget, don't we? We do tend to always look forward and never back, really. And we say, yeah, 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 I did that, but who cares? Yeah, you always so want what? more, right? It's like yeah. you always want to go faster or bigger or whatever and going like, oh, you know. But I also think that, you know, going back to, you know, kind of how we started this conversation of like, how did you end up on this career path and what does it take and what skill sets do you need? And it's like, you know, I, I'm just finding that problem solving, you know, no matter if we're doing business or working with a brand or a, a, a printer or a factory or a supplier, like in the end, you know, most of my day is conversations and then problem solving, you know, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will say the same thing. Like my, my problems are very similar to someone doing a completely different product in a completely different industry. It's just problem solving. And can you get to an answer that's quick, that's, you know, um, that's uh that's gonna like solve the problem and keep things going forward so um yeah, yeah. confidence in the problem solving is good well one of those things that i've always been fascinated with 
you mentioned there's a progression. You start with one idea and then it morphs and you said other people come in. And eventually we all recognize when a company or a process gets to a point where there's a positive feedback loop and then suddenly they're far and away the best. And you say, well, obviously they make money. Obviously they're successful. Obviously that whole thing is working for them. But it's just fascinating to me how we get from A to B in that sense. What is the beginning? What is that seed that sometimes grows into something else and sometimes doesn't? Is it just being a problem solver? Why did this path work out, do you think, even though it ended up nowhere near where it began? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of approaches to life in general, careers in general, projects in general, you know, I think we, I think we were really, and we continue to be like very determined to find things that work, you know, and uh, I, I kind of joke that, you know, we've gone down this route because we found opportunity and we're really, really darn stubborn, <laughs> you know, we're like, we're going to make this work, not to the point where, you know, we would never let our egos get in the way of like, if it's not working, then we're not going to force it. But we're like, hey, this isn't working. And then we have always found that next way to make it work. And we've kind of pieced it together. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think a lot of it for us just comes down to determination. And then, you know, talking it through and, and having a very practical approach, like we've de-risked the technology before we like launch with, you know, brands and, and, and uh, we've, um, you know, uh, uh, worked with like, like we had this partner in Colorado called Eco Enclosed. They're a big packaging kind of sustainable packaging company. And we first met them, they weren't that big, they were kind of small. And those were these breakthroughs were like, they're like, you know, no one else wanted to work with us because like, we don't really want to work with a company that doesn't have a product yet that will probably muck up my printer or whatever. And they, they, I, you know, I had a I LinkedIn message the owner and he said, come in whenever you have the ink and like, let's try it. This is really cool. And I think my customers would really like this, at least some of them. And so just have enough of those kind of moments. But yeah, I was probably like 0 for 20 at that point of getting responses from printers who were like, this is interesting. I want to try it, you know. So persistence it goes a long ways, I think, in, in all of these pursuits of what, what people are, are doing to make it work. <laughs> yeah, great advice. Great advice there. And the evolution obviously took you from one thing to another and then to Living Ink. So what are you thinking about now? What are your sights set on these days? Yeah. So right now we're really in the middle of um, raising a, a pretty big round of funding to basically fuel expansion and scale of the product. So we're, we're we just launched with uh, Nike recently. We've got uh, you know we did all of Patagonia's hang tags. We worked with uh, launched product with American Eagle and Marmot, and we got some nice footwear projects coming out this year. So. Yeah, it's it's you know getting getting a little bit of funding to to build the business the right way and um, and continue to launch with brands in a very practical way of doing things. So th that's a lot of brand conversations, a lot of factory conversations. So we send samples to factories of brands and then we get feedback or they you know ask a lot of questions. So yeah, it's it's growing the business is really where we're at right now. Sounds brilliant. Obviously, those are major names big names i've only ever heard good things about patagonia they've come up a number of times on this show are they really that great of a company everybody says they're the best the paragon of a great company is patagonia is that true do you think i mean i from what we've experienced um it is in the way that i think the individuals that work there the company culture you know it's privately owned so they can control the way that they do things um, rather than having, you know, investors or, or stakeholders that they need to report back to in terms of, uh, you know, profits. 
Um, so yeah, we've had a great experience with Patagonia overall. And I think, yeah, everyone that I've, that I know that works with them, it only says good things too. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't change, can't change your mind on that one, but with, with my experience. <laughs> nice. Obviously you'd expect that. And obviously Marmot, you'd also expect, I guess Nike, you might expect less. They don't have necessarily the best track record on these things. Do you think that they're starting to shift, see the value of being more sustainable? Is this a conversation that more large corporations are willing to have? Yeah. I mean, I, I, am like, uh, you know, I, I, I always say that for me as an individual, I'm like a, I'm like a skeptical dreamer, right? I have this dreaming side of me and then there's this scientific skeptical, you know, negative side of things won't change. But I got to say that in the last um, two and a half years, really since COVID started, uh, I, I've seen I've seen a lot of conversations turn into real actions, both individually and at some of these companies. So I think that there's been a, um, uh, I think COVID in just that time that people had, that space to get perspective on the world, I think really changed. And, you know, we were, we've been told in the, in the past that a big brand will never pay more. They'll never work with a small company because there's risk and liability. There's just all these issues. And, you know, that's not what we're seeing right now. And I think that really did change in 2020. Yep. So and another thing that changed is uh, the name of my podcast is now going to be called Skeptical Dreamer. I'm stealing that from you. <laughs> you can have it. You can that's, have it. That's I'm, mine. I'm, we're Colorado. <laughs> we're mine Colorado. Now. I'll give yeah. it to you. <laughs> it's got to exist, right? There's probably already a book. It's a bestseller. It's <laughs> yeah, on the list, exactly. I'm sure. If I go, it's first result on Amazon, obviously. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, what hasn't been done these days? But yeah, I, yeah. I, that is my <laughs> default state. It's just the, the, the tension between cynicism and skepticism and uh, idealism. And they're both so powerful. Yeah. So many terrible things happening, but yet there are so many really good, really smart people doing really good, really smart things too. Yeah. And that's basically the balance of why this show exists. Yeah. To showcase more people like you in a sea of all those other people. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's, it's, uh, I, I appreciate the podcast and the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, thesis there, because I do think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of great things going on and I, and I can say from the brand level, I mean, what I've started to realize is that, you know, like I can sit there with my dad and I can recycle things. Um, and that's needed and everyone has a role in doing their part. But, you know, when you think about massive brands, massive factories, the amount of energy, the materials that they're using. I mean, that's where I think there starts to become impact. So I am encouraged with this whole kind of climate conversation, ESG conversation where, you know, you've got consumers demanding it from a lot of these groups. And now you're starting to get some of the big investment firms that actually fund some of these companies to say, you do need to change your carbon emissions. You do need to do have actions. And so uh, that's where I start to see some positive traction going on. I think there's a long road and it's a very big scale that we work at in the, this world kind of global supply chain. But I see more action than I've ever seen um, than, than just conversations. So I, I'm encouraged, although faster is always better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And petroleum, of course, will always have its uses as long as it's available to us. But we have to ask ourselves, are we using it in the wisest way? Does it make sense to be using it for all these other things when we know we need it for fuel and, and things that we can't use anything else for? Does it make sense that my zucchini is packaged in petroleum? Does yeah. that do I need that? Do I need to have my deodorant come in a plastic? Why is it always plastic, plastic, petroleum-based? Does every card need to have ink from petroleum? Can we not take at least some of these things off of that plate? 
And you might notice this being interested in sustainability, but July, some people do plastic free July. And I have been trying, but my God, it is so hard. There are certain things that you can do to reduce your plastic for sure, but getting rid of plastic or not even buying plastic for one month is damn near impossible in the way our society is set up, certainly in America at least. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we can we can have the material conversation, but oh, can we make bioplastics? Can we make biodegradable plastic? But, you know, I'm kind of like you and the rational thought of like, do we really need do I need my tomatoes wrapped in plastic? You know, um, am I willing to eat fruit that has a little ding maybe that's not, you know, packaged in a, in a hard shell? And for me, the answer is yes, and I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, I, I think it's you're exactly right in the petroleum conversation. Like, if you ever go camping, you know, and I, I used to camp quite a bit and backpack, and you know, you have like three liters of water, and you know that that's so valuable to you. You would never like, you know, you eat an apple if your hands are sticky. You're not like, let's just dump half a liter and wash my hands because then that, yeah. that night you're like, oh my gosh, why did I wash my hands with the water, right? And so. I feel like that's kind of what we're going to get to in petroleum. It's like, wow, what were we doing with that? Like, that was so valuable. And there's some essential things, tires. Like, we need tires in the we world, whether tires. it's an electric car or whatever, right? Like, we need medical things that the petroleum can be used for. So, you know, I was at I was at a conference one time and someone asked me, like, do you think that, you know, algae is the future of materials? And do you think that bioproducts are the future of materials? And... I kind of like thought about it and it's like the answer is a hundred percent yes because it has to be you know like like petroleum is finite like we know that there's only so much and for us humans we're going oh there's plenty there but when you think about a hundred years which is a very short part of how old this earth is we will use that all up guaranteed relatively quickly and then we're sitting there going like how do we make a toothbrush how do we make ink how do we make fuel how do we make tires right so it's it's just interesting how short-sighted we can be as a um, community of, of humans um, and you know and it's difficult right we're all in the weeds everyone's busy everyone's got things going on so I think these podcasts are really important to, to think about some of the basics there and ask these questions like do you need tomatoes or apples packaged in plastic when we know we need it for really important things <laughs> yeah and the camping analogy is such a great one and I also learned a lot about that thinking from space and the International Space Station astronauts saying the amount of toothpaste that we use to brush our teeth by default is just stupidly high when you only have one tube of toothpaste for months or years. They're like, you don't need that much toothpaste. Just a teeny yeah. tiny bit yeah, is plenty yeah, yeah. to actually do the job. And people are like, yeah, it. but yeah, in space, yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, we, yeah. we can only pack in so much. We only have so much weight that we can literally bring on a rocket. Yeah. Then you're going to yeah. think about those kinds of things, camping, uh, but here we just waste is sort of our default state. And if you suggest otherwise, you're crazy or you're a nut or you're a maniac. Like, oh, yeah. you're, one of, you're one of those. Yes, you yeah. have a PhD, yeah. but who cares, right? Who cares yeah. if you're a doctor? Yeah. yeah, you idiot. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is like we all know science. I mean, I like, I like the rocket analogy, right? We, all, we also know science takes a long time, right? I mean, people always get frustrated, like, oh, we've heard about this one project. Why isn't it going bigger? It just takes time. Like, it's it's just, it, it just does. I've never seen a science project where, like, that was way faster than we ever thought it would be. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I think that that's the other thing as we think about transitioning away from fossil fuels or petroleum. It's, it's, 
it's uh, like it has to, it's starting now. Right. And so you might see some obscure project or even if you looked at us doing ink that was growing like, you know, seven years ago, you're like, well, what is that? But like all these ideas have to be seeded now. They have to be worked on now in order for them to make any impact in the next decades. Right. So people always look at fracking. Right. And go, oh, like what a breakthrough fracking was. You know, they didn't realize it was decades worth of R&D to get to the point where you could frack and get energy. You know, they just kind of thought, oh, the breakthrough, it happened, you know. So, you know, we need to kind of have these breakthroughs in the biomaterial space, the biofuel space. And I think there's a lot of good things going on. I do think a lot of these um, brands can play a role in adopting these different technologies and, you know, paying a little bit more to work with a startup in a novel material, but showcasing it is is super critical that in, in terms of what I see in my perspective on these things, you know. We get questions sometimes of like, you know, even a couple of years ago, are you cheaper than a company that's an $8 billion company that makes their product globally and has a, you know, a, 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 a super efficient supply chain? And the answer is no, because like we're a startup of three, we were a startup of like two or three people. <laughs> we're making this with our own hands. So no, no, we're not. But this has to get adopted. And once it gets at scale, it will be, you know, but it's hard for people to see that because it takes time and money and things like that. So, yeah, I think I think that. Again, I think all the stakeholders are, are understanding there's the problem and that we're working on solutions. So again, I'm more of a dreamer right now than a skeptic, but you know, there's a little skeptic there. <laughs> that's that's good. And of course, yeah, we need people like you working on these things because if you don't work on them, they definitely won't get solved. That's the one thing we know. They may not get solved, but the only chance that we have is if we try. So that's why people out, you know, smart people like you who are taking their lives and their time and their energy and devoting it to this kind of stuff. That's why it's such a valuable thing that I really want to go out of my way to celebrate yeah. because it's just, we have to reward the people who are out there on the front lines of what we want to happen instead of just focusing on this behemoth of a monstrous problem of all the stuff that we don't want to happen, which is just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I, I do every morning. And I, I really, even during the bad days or the tough days, it's like, you know, all you can do is try. And if you believe in what you're trying to do, it gets you through a lot of difficult times. And so that's something that I feel grateful for that I've chosen this and, you know, and doing the best we can. And you know, trying to recruit people into these different industries and getting getting talented, experienced people to help build these products and companies so they have a chance and they can succeed in the world is a big part of my passion. And um, yeah, you're exactly right. If you don't try, nothing ever will happen. So it's worth it's worth a shot. And you never know what comes of it, right? Maybe we talk in two years and we're not even doing ink anymore. We're doing all sorts of different things, right? <laughs> but whatever you're going to be doing, it's going to be cool as hell. That we know for sure. <laughs> be like, oh, actually, ink is not the thing we need. It turns out barbecues are where it's really at. <laughs> Did you know that the average barbecue weighs 4,000 tons of petroleum? I did not know that, but I'm glad you know that. I'm glad you figured it out. <laughs> Thank you for uh, taking her easy for the rest of us, to borrow a line from <laughs> the Big Lebowski. Um, we have reached the end of our hour. It's been an absolute pleasure. Again, I think it's super cool what you've been doing. I know that it will continue to evolve and grow, and, and in cool ways. It's a subject that I would have never thought of, but I'm glad to have learned a little bit more about it. We'll definitely monitor algae more in the future, and... Maybe even buy a pair of shoes made from algae one day if I track down that other company. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I want to give the final word to you, so promote whatever you like, so close this show out, whatever you want to say. Here we go. 
Yeah, well, thanks, Ross. I, you know, I, I love these unorthodox uh, conversations about careers and ideas and how to start different uh, different things. So, uh, lo- love what you're doing. You know, for anyone interested in Living Inc., you know, we, we are relatively active on um, all of the social media platforms and even even LinkedIn. So, happy to connect with anyone that's that's interested in you, whether you're an artist or you uh, you work at a brand or, or whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, I. Uh, I think I'll end it the way we were kind of talking about it. It's like, you know, it's, it's worth doing things differently. It's worth uh, pursuing whatever you think your, your passion is. And if you try your best, then what else can you do? That, that's kind of my, my, my daily advice to myself. <laughs> well, that is a fabulous way to end it. So thank you, Scott. And with that, the official podcast is over. Oh.